Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. My name is Danny Sugimoto. I have the privilege of serving here as your middle school pastor. And uh, if you look towards the back of the room, we have some of our students with us today and some elsewhere scattered throughout the room. Uh, but yeah, this morning I have the privilege of continuing this series in Acts that we've been working through. So if you're new to Sunridge, welcome. Uh, we're so glad to see you here in this room or online or if you're listening on the podcast, hello from the future or the past really. Uh, we have the privilege of continuing this series through the book of Acts. For the last several weeks, we've been walking through uh, the story of the transition of the early church as it started from this group of 12 guys following this guy named Jesus, uh, and it's kind of snowballed its way into this global religion. And if you've been with us throughout this series, typically someone from our congregation takes the stage, they read our passage for this week. Uh, but if you've been following us on social media, you might have noticed that some of the verses that I have picked for this week's kind of scripture of the weekend are a little bit scattered. Uh, we're covering two and a half chapters of the book of Acts. And so finding the exact right uh, sentence or two or verse through, you know, six passages maybe uh, didn't feel right. And so I felt it would be better if I could kind of read through the passage, give you some context, and then just jump straight into uh, getting after it. And so this morning we're going to be looking through Acts 21.17 through the end of chapter 23, and our passage that we'll read today is this. This is 23, verse 31. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. And then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. This passage comes from the end of today's section of Scripture. Again, two and a half chapters through the book of Acts. And these are the final thoughts from our story. Because our story today takes us to this really important moment in Paul's life. And we get to watch him make this transition from freedom into his imprisonment. And hopefully hearing these words coming at the end of chapter 23, it's kind of prompting some questions within you. Like, what, what caused this? Why would we start here? Why is Paul under Roman guard? What will happen next for our hero, this guy that we've been following for chapter after chapter through this book? Paul, the apostle, the one who has felt the call from God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, is now in prison. So how does our story begin. Verse 21, 17, it says, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they praised God and they said to Paul, you see, brother, 
How many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to the customs. What shall we do? Luke captures Paul's entrance into the city of Jerusalem. Notice there's this use of we and this us, these first-person plurals. This is one of the sections of Acts that Luke experienced himself. He is an eyewitness to these things that are happening to Paul. And so again, Paul is back in Jerusalem just as he was, if you remember, back in chapter 15. And if you remember that chapter, Paul's presence in Jerusalem, it prompted some serious conversations, some serious dialogue, some debates specifically regarding the things that Paul was teaching. And in fact, it seems that Luke is in intentionally framing this encounter as the Jerusalem Council 2.0, which is the first fill in the blank on your sheets. The Jerusalem Council 2.0. He's back in Jerusalem. The setting is the same. The elders are there. James is there. The people are the same. The church leaders are the same. All the major people who were back at the first Jerusalem Council are here now for this Jerusalem Council 2.0. But things are just a little bit different. Whereas in chapter 15, the concern was that Paul was preaching to the Gentiles, these people who were seen as being outside of the promises of God, that initial conflict had been resolved. The council made a decision that paved a way for Gentiles to officially belong to the church and to begin to officially participate in these blessings of God. You see that in verse 25 where the council retells the result of that initial council meeting. Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised, but instead they needed to abstain from food sacrifices to idols, to abstain from blood, to abstain from the meat of strangled animals, and to abstain from sexual immorality. Four things, aside from a belief in Jesus, were needed for them to be participants in the Christian church, participants in the Christian faith. So that original issue, are the Gentiles in or are they out, that has been settled. But there's a new conversation happening this time. Here the issue is Paul's teachings to Jewish Christians to these people who had been Jews their whole lives, who had converted to Christianity, chosen to follow Jesus, but were living among the Gentiles. The concern is what he's telling those people, these Jewish Christians. We would do well to remember that the foundation of the Christian faith is, in fact, Judaism. Jesus himself was Jewish. The disciples were Jewish. Paul, Jewish. And as we will see, he was probably the most Jewish person you could be at this time in history. All of these people are Jewish. And so these Jewish practices are central to the Christian faith at this moment in time. And so here, Paul is being accused of telling these Jewish Christians to forego their long-held beliefs regarding things like circumcision, regarding things like high holidays, regarding things like temple and purity codes. And these accusers are saying that, that Paul is telling these Jewish Christians to just throw it all away. Give up your religious and cultural identity, which is a really big deal if it were true. But in fact, it isn't. As is common for Paul as we read throughout his letters, he was often the victim of false accusations, often the victim of misconstrued messaging about what he was legitimately teaching. And so this is a familiar situation for Paul. He is once again facing the leaders of the Christian church in Jerusalem and being asked to defend himself. These church leaders, though, ask Paul to engage in what is called a Nazarite vow. 
It is a serious, solemn ritual where a participant would avoid strong drink. They would avoid cutting their hair. They would avoid dead bodies. It was an act meant to show how serious a commitment to God was, how serious you were about your faith, how much you, you loved God, how you revered God. You would take this Nazarite vow to say, like, I'm all in. I'm all in, and I'm going to do all these things to prove it to you. The church leaders, knowing how influential Paul is, want him to demonstrate that faithfulness, demonstrate that love, save face by taking on this act. And Paul says, yes, in what is perhaps the first recorded PR move. Paul, it's not just a PR move. Paul understands. Some of you are getting that a little bit late. Uh, Paul understands. It's not just a public relations thing. It's not just about looking one way when in reality things are completely different. Paul understands the importance of showing that he didn't actually say these things, that this is actually all built up on a lie, that these accusations are false. He understands the importance of showing up and be like, yes, I am actually all in. He understands the power of this messaging and what it means for a leader to return to the roots, to come back to how things used to be, to come back to the origin of the faith. And so he wants to communicate the depth of his regard, the depth of his love for his Jewish roots, while also using this as an opportunity to further connect with God, to further invest in his relationship, to practice this ritual that was meant to help people focus on God. And so they say to him, are you going to take this vow? It would mean a lot to these people if you took this vow. And Paul says, yes, I will do this thing, and it's meant to last for seven days. What's interesting, though, uh, as we work through this kind of section of Acts, this is Jerusalem Council 2.0. That's an unofficial title. If you Google that, you won't find anything because I made that up myself. Uh, it's very clever, you know, take the thing, 2.0. Moving on. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that in this section of Scripture, we know the letters that Paul has written before this. We know the things that he's been doing, the missions trips that he's been on, the journeys he has taken. And in this section, when you would think, hey, uh, there are accusations that you don't love the Jerusalem people. There are the accusations that you don't love the Jerusalem church, that you don't want to be a part of the Jewish faith. There is no mention of Paul's collection from the Gentile churches. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about this massive collection that he's been picking up. These offerings that these churches are making to support the Jerusalem church, this, this centerpiece of the Christian faith at the time. So Paul's been going from region to region, building up this collection, this financial gift, this sign of affection and collaboration and respect, a sign of good faith from the Gentile churches. Luke doesn't mention it. He doesn't bring this up like, hey, Paul's going to offer you money as like a, like a buyout, as a, a thing to keep your silence. This big financial collection would have gained the favor of the Jerusalem church, but Luke has other objectives in mind when it comes to reporting this story. Because what happens next is the catalyst, the launching point that will take us through the end of our time together. It happens in chapter 21, verse 27. It reads this, When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. 
They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Some people, they see Paul. They see him, they grab him, claiming that he is both denouncing Judaism, telling people to avoid the Jewish faith at all costs, and that he has defiled the temple by bringing in a Gentile. Even though the Jerusalem Council decision opened up a pathway for Gentiles to practice Christianity, the Gentiles, any non-Jewish person, they were still barred from fully participating in Jewish temple life. Now, here's an image that we're going to put up on the screen to show you what the temple actually looked like. See, the temple was designed uh, as a series of spaces that were meant to be more exclusive uh, and an increase in holiness as you entered into the center of the temple. And so the exterior court, you see it over there on the left of this image, it is the court of Gentiles. That is the furthest place into the temple grounds that a Gentile, a non-Jewish person could enter. And then within that uh, barrier, there's the women's court there, kind of towards the center bottom of this image. And the women's court was obviously the place where the women would go. And then you have the court of Israel up on these steps. And then underneath that kind of awning, you have the altar, and then the court of the priests, and then the holy place in the center. And then within the holy place, there's an even more sacred place, the holiest of holies, the alleged dwelling place of God. The temple is sacred to them. The temple has a system. The temple has an order. And so they see Paul with this guy, and they're like, well, he obviously brought this man in. And for Paul, a religious teacher, a man in the middle of a Nazarite vow, it's not even over yet. He's still on day seven. To, for him to be seen bringing in a Gentile beyond the space where that Gentile was allowed would cause rightfully an uproar. And more than that, this action of bringing a Gentile further in than allowed for defiling this temple. It was, a, it was a punishment that involved death. But what really caused their reaction? Verse 29. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They saw Paul. They saw an Ephesian, a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, and they assumed. The catalyst for our story is what happens when misinformed perspectives meet overly zealous people. When misinformed perspectives meet overly zealous people. These Jewish guys who grab Paul, all these people surrounding Paul in the temple, they think they are doing the right thing. By their laws, they are doing the right thing. They are taking the law into their own hands. They see a violation, and it's like a citizen's arrest. They're like, you can't do that here. Stop this. And so they grab Paul. They're putting a stop to his irreverence. But their actions that defend the thing that they love so much are based on an assumption. They're based on something with no real evidence. They're misinformed. They tried to put two and two together and ended up with a completely different answer. And they're burning love for the law. Rather than ask questions first, they just jump into action. They just get after it. And then they spread that messaging to others. We saw Paul. We saw this Ephesian. He must have brought him into the temple. They rally everybody up declaring this thing that they allegedly witnessed until all the people around them are in a frenzy. They riot. They storm the temple gates. They come grabbing Paul. People come running from all over the temple. It is madness. Someone calls the police and the Roman soldiers enter into the space to bring law and order. And they grab Paul and they drag him out. They drag him off to safety, to their barracks, their own place of dwelling. And there, 
the Roman commander interacts with Paul in a way that makes us realize he, too, was misinformed. Verse 37 and 38. Do you speak Greek? He, the Roman commander, replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? These Jewish people who believed the lie stir up people, and they all have one perspective of Paul. This Roman commander who has Paul dragged away for safety thinks that he has caught the leader of a terrorist cell. Yet another perspective of Paul. But neither one of these parties is seeing Paul for who he is. Neither one of them has an accurate perception of these events. They are both zealous groups. They are passionate. They love the thing they do. These Jewish folks are zealous for the law. They want to protect the temple. They want to keep it sacred, keep it holy. It is the dwelling place of God. They are passionate about their faith and this building, and so they want to make sure that people stay where they belong. And these Roman soldiers, they love their city. They love their nation, their empire. They want to protect it from people who wish to see it crumble, so they take action in a certain way. But in this story, when misinformed perspectives meet overly zealous people, a, a man ends up beaten. Nearly torn apart by the crowd. An innocent man ends up under arrest, and it could have been much, much worse for him. When misinformed perspectives meet overly zealous people, the innocent are harmed. But our story continues. Because here in this interaction with this Roman commander, we see Paul begin to craft his defense, to begin to explain who he is and what has happened as he recognizes it. He wants to talk to the crowd, the crowd that just beat him, the crowd that just attacked him, tried to take his life, accused him of doing something based on groupthink and lies and deceit. And so he asks this commander for permission to speak to the crowd. And the commander's like, whatever, man, it's your life. Like, they just tried to kill you. And so Paul takes the stage, he steps up in front of these people, and we see him do a handful of things. First, Paul responds in common language. He responds in common language. Paul speaks to the Roman soldiers in Greek. He speaks to them in one language, communicating to, the thing, to them in the way that they are most comfortable. Speaking to them in Greek, and then he turns to the crowd, these Jewish people, and he speaks to them in Aramaic, the common tongue for most of these folks. And in doing so, he's diffusing this story that he's an Egyptian. He's diffusing this accusation regarding his own adherence to the law and what brought him before the council. And he's revealing a common history, a common connection to these people. And Luke makes sure to record this. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet probably recognizing, we messed up. We have made a mistake. And Paul speaks to these people calmly. He begins by giving them just a snapshot of his own life, of who he is. He starts his speech and he establishes his credibility. He tells them exactly who he is. He says, I was born Jewish. I studied under Gamaliel who, if you remember, is a huge voice in Judaism. Paul says, I was just as passionate as you about the law. I was out there persecuting Christians, having them arrested. I was there when Stephen was stoned. I am just as zealous for this law as you. He's appealing to their need to see his credentials. But Paul knows his stuff. 
He knows the Jewish faith. He's not just some random guy off the street. He has studied, he has served, he has lived it. And so he gives his credibility, establishes these credentials, and then Paul goes on telling his experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He communicates his experience and his calling. And this is where things get a little spicy for Paul. He talks to them about what happened on that road, on that trip to Damascus, how he was blinded. And then he wraps up this speech by talking about this interaction with Jesus and how he feels this call to introduce the Gentiles into the promises of God, to go out to preach the word, to invite them in, how he feels that God is expanding the margins for how we understand who is in and who is out, how God is opening up doors and inviting people in who have always been seen as being beyond the promises of God. And that is when this crowd starts raging. That is when this crowd, they start shouting, They take off their coats. They start throwing them into the streets. They pick up dust in their hands and start tossing it in the air like they're LeBron James. They are furious at Paul. They are furious that this man of great stature would even consider inviting these Gentiles in. That is blasphemy. That is an abomination. And the Roman commander, seeing what is happening before him, this guy who thought that Paul was a terrorist, he has the soldiers grab Paul and drag him back inside. And then he says, oh, I don't know what just happened. So he orders them to beat him to beat Paul until he can figure out what is happening because he has no idea, no perception, no worldview, no perspective of what is going on that would cause this crowd to respond to Paul with such anger and aggression. And so he assumes he must have said something offensive. He must have said something that was against the laws. And so the soldiers want answers and they're willing to torture Paul to get them. He doesn't understand. And as they grab Paul, And they stretch out his arms and hold him back to flog him. Paul appeals to his rights as a Roman citizen. He's kept it close to the chest, but in times of crisis, Paul has been known to flash his citizenship, to keep him out of trouble, to buy himself a little bit of time. And here, once again, when Paul says, hey, don't you know I'm a Roman citizen? The soldiers withdraw because Jerusalem is under Roman rule. Citizens of Rome had special privileges. They had a completely different set of laws to abide under. And harming Paul is a violation of those laws. And so Paul's willingness to employ an appeal for his rights as an individual Roman citizen, buy him some time to maneuver. This appeal gets Paul a seat in front of the Sanhedrin, this group of Jewish elders who kind of ran the faith in Jerusalem. And he's able to exploit the theological differences between these two groups of people, these Pharisees and these Sadducees. And they start to argue with each other and they start to argue over what to do with Paul. And so he ends up buying himself some more time. And it's there in this extra window of opportunity that Paul gets a message from the Lord. Acts 23, 11, it says, The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul's response bought him enough time to hear a word, a direct word from God about what is to come. Paul knew, based on his previous experiences, at some point God was going to speak to him again. God was going to give him some direction. He just needed to wait a little bit. He just needed to buy himself some more time. And sometimes in order to buy ourselves time, in order to hear a word from God, we just need to get away from it all. This wasn't the first time that Paul was on the edge of catastrophe. 
So he responded in a way that was grounded in who God has been this whole time, since the beginning of this journey. Paul's response to everything that has happened to him so far in this story was informed by, first, God's faithfulness. It was informed by God's faithfulness. Throughout his letters, Paul writes over and over and over again about all of the ways that he has been a witness to a God of faithfulness. How Paul has seen God show up in the darkest circumstances to inject hope and faith into Paul's perspective. And this isn't just faithfulness to and for Paul. Paul, an educated, well-known, well-read Jewish Pharisee, has studied the passages and the history of his people. He knows the way that God has rescued and delivered the Hebrew people from trouble at the Exodus, into the promised lands, under the judges in the midst of exile. Paul witnesses God's faithfulness throughout Scripture and throughout his own experience. And so Paul's response is formed by this faithfulness of God, but it's also informed by God's protection, by God's protection in every scenario so far. When Paul seems to be down for the count, God has protected him. In 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks a handful of times of some of the dangerous events that have gone on in his life. And how he has been so very close to death. And how close he has been from losing everything that he's been working for. Everything that he has been building up for the Christian faith. And yet, God provided. God has protected. God has stepped in and intervened. Revealing that Paul still has more work to do. That there's still more to be done for the kingdom. More to be done to help spread and continue to spread the gospel. And so knowing that there is still more to do, Paul has trusted in God's continued guidance. He trusted that God would be good again. He trusted that God would be faithful again. He has seen it. He has heard the voice of God. He has seen the power of God firsthand. He has been serving in this capacity for so long that it is pure instinct to trust that God is leading to trust that God is guiding, to trust that God is taking him somewhere else. And so Paul trusts in the plan. He trusts that God will lead him through whatever it is that comes next. So Paul in his triumph, his faith, his glory, the pinnacle of his ministry career, knowing that God is leading him, knowing that God is taking him somewhere, Paul trusts God is by his side guiding him on his path as Paul is in prison. At the top of his game, he is in chains. In the centerpiece of the city, inside the temple, he is arrested. When the reader would expect Paul's release and a celebration within the Christian church, when we might expect the locks to be broken once again, the doors to be opened up once again, nothing in fact changes for Paul. He's detained. He's shipped off to Caesarea, as we read at the start of our morning. God's guidance has led him here to prison, most likely uh, under some sort of house arrest as we would understand it. He's sitting in Herod's palace awaiting what will be the end of the beginning, the end and the beginning of the next stage of his life. This is a new era for Paul, unexplored territory. It's a new dawning for him. And if we didn't have all the information that Paul had, 
We might be reading this and think, I want to give up. We might think that the story is over, but it's not. Paul is not done yet. Paul is not done because of who God is. Oh, I'm getting emotional. Let's go. Let's do this. Paul is not done because of who God is. The same things that inform Paul's response to the crowds accusing him of his influence, accusing him of, uh, of all these things, the same God is moving Paul forward, advancing his perspective. The same God who is faithful and who protects and who guides is standing at Paul's side. Seated in Herod's palace, Paul remembers how he was once free to travel, how he was free to evangelize, how he was free to wander wherever he would like. But his situation has radically changed. His circumstances have shifted, and he's starting to recognize, maybe I don't understand what's happening. Maybe this is the end. Maybe there's no escaping it this time. Maybe this new era is the beginning of the end for me. And while it might be expected for Paul to give up and give in, we know that he still has so much left to do. There are five chapters left in the book of Acts. That is five chapters of work for Paul that would make up the remaining four years of his life. God is not done with Paul just yet, and God is not done with you either. Look at all that you survived. It is 2022. Look at everything that has happened that has tried to take you out. Will you recognize that God has delivered you each and every time? And if you're in the midst of it, the thick of it, understand that God is still with you and guiding you and leading you through You might have a different idea of what you wanted, a different idea of the ending of this section. Paul might have experienced, expected a different ending for him. These probably aren't the circumstances that he imagined when he set off on all of these missionary journeys. And maybe that's how you feel today. These circumstances aren't what I wanted. My life is not what I had imagined. Whether you're drowning in debt or trying to make ends meet, or attempting to figure out where you're going to live or how you're going to afford this bill or that payment, God is there with you. If you are or have been displaced from this Fairview fire and you're wondering when the next fire might hit and where it might go and if this time it will reach your property, God is still with you. If you feel that you've done nothing but mess up or make mistakes and you can't stay sober and you just keep slipping and slipping and slipping, God can still use you and still use your life and your influence, God can still rescue and redeem and restore you. And as we close out the service, I'd like to invite the worship team back up. Tomorrow, tomorrow marks six months since my dad unexpectedly passed away. On March 11th, he suffered a stroke. On March 12th, my mom, sister, and I were in the room. So we said goodbye. I took two weeks off of work, two weeks off of doing this thing that I love, and when I came back, man, I didn't think I could do it anymore. I didn't think that I'd be able to stand here on this stage and say much of anything of value to anybody. I didn't think I'd be able to talk about the goodness of God or the faithfulness of God because I didn't feel it. I didn't feel it. 
kept thinking about all the stuff that I was going to be missing out on. That we would be missing out on. Me and my dad and my family, my mom. Sister, I was so angry. God, I was so angry. That my circumstances had unexpectedly changed. That things had been different. That my life had changed. That we could never take the boys camping or take them to baseball games or sit in silence with each other as we watched Top Gun or Star Wars. We couldn't do any of those things. Those first few weeks when I was back at Quest, we had game nights every week for like a month and a half. We ate pizza and we played games and we played dodgeball and that was it. I had nothing to give your middle school students. I'll be honest here. I had nothing to give them. I tried to be as honest as I could with our leaders and say, guys, I don't know where I'm at right now and I need you to just be okay with that. And they were gracious enough to give me space to explore, space to just try stuff. Even if it got weird, we did small groups for like three months. But I wasn't ready. I felt empty. I felt poured out and drained. I remember sitting with Jed during a one-on-one up in his office just a couple weeks after. I was, dude, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do this job anymore. Because this is not the life I expected. I, I don't know how I'm going to get up on stage and do the thing that made my dad the most proud. But I'm here. And I don't say that to make you look at me and go, wow, that guy, that guy's godly. That guy's got it all. That guy has it together. I, I don't do that to, do, to make you feel that way. Because I don't. That's not who I am. I'm just here. I'm just along for the ride. I'm not better than you because I'm a pastor somewhere. I'm not better than you because I have degrees in scripture. I'm not better than any of you. Every step of the way, these last six months, I just wanted to cut and run. I wanted to be done. I wanted to flee. I wanted to go back in time and just freeze all of those moments that I had taken for granted. But I don't have that much power, so instead, I just got up. I just stood up. I woke up, and I showed up, and I started to trust that God was going to take me somewhere. I started to trust that God was leading me somewhere, that God is leading all of us somewhere new. And for Paul, that meant that he would be taken captive. It meant that he would be beaten, that he'd be put on trial. That new thing that God was doing for him looked like being in house arrest in Caesarea so that the gospel could be proclaimed. For me, it meant living through my grief, living through my loss, living through my mourning, living through my healing, to show up and to be here for you. Maybe it means living through your divorce. Maybe it means living through actually making systematic change in your family structure or in your heart. Maybe it means actually living through what it looks like to just struggle for once, to have the questions, to ask the questions, and to trust that God will bring you answers. And they might not be what you hope they are, but they are going to be answers. God is leading each and every single one of us through something. And whatever it is, I hope that you recognize and start to live in relationship with a God who is bigger than everything, who is bigger than all our fears, like we sang this morning, a God who chooses to invest, a God who chooses to not forget, who chooses to not abandon or give up on us, who chooses to not cut losses, who chooses to think that you are actually good enough. 
I hope that you begin to believe that God is not done with you yet, despite your grief, despite your hopelessness and your doubts and your questions and your deconstruction and your reconstruction or your distance or your brokenness. God is not done with you yet. God is taking you somewhere. God is leading all of us somewhere new, someplace that is for our good. There's so much life yet to be lived. Will you trust and follow that despite your circumstances, whether or not they look like what you had hoped for or imagined when you were a kid, that God is taking you, there's value in you, and that God is good enough to work it all out for us. Will you stand and worship with us this morning? Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.